0: Well, we are beginning a new series. In fact, this is a series that we're going to be returning to uh, again and again uh, throughout this next year. Um, series, obviously titled Splendor. And as we get going, I'll kind of explain what we mean and what we're talking about with this. But uh, we're going to actually begin with a Greek word, catechesis, just because it's fun. Go ahead, try it, catechesis. Isn't it's fun? Don't you? F- do you feel like so much smarter now? Like, like, just a little bit better than everybody else who isn't here. Uh, Greek is a Greek word, and it means literally oral instruction. And for a long time, the way in which uh, the church taught the faith was through catechesis, was through oral instruction. You could probably understand that if you kind of cast your mind back to like fifth grade, like history, you'll remember that before the printing press was out, books were very difficult to make. And so reading wasn't an essential skill. So not only were, difficult, were books expensive and difficult to, to purchase and get, but it became then difficult to read or have any, have any literacy. So literacy rates were, were low, books were low, and the people who generally had them were people like myself, people who were in kind of a clergy, which kind of became a class. And so the way that people would educate their children or new converts from the very early days all the way to probably about the time when you we started getting Bibles. Most of you were raised, any of you who were raised in the church, or maybe if you joined a church at some point, you're probably handed a Bible immediately, right? When I was a kid, they handed me, I remember it vividly, my first Bible, blue, precious moments. I don't know who thought a boy would possibly want a precious moments Bible. I mean, whoever runs Hallmark, just psycho, psychos. But um, blue, precious moments Bible, uh, King James Version, right? Hand it off to me. Good luck, Jordan. Discover God. <laughs> right here, you go. Um, but we have that. We have the ability to sort of read. They didn't have that. And so one of the ways that they developed communicating the faith was through something we call creeds. A creed is probably a word you're actually somewhat familiar with. But they would they would show up to church and the the the, the the person who was kind of leading the group would maybe begin with the creed and you would recite it together. If you ever went to a Catholic church or anybody been to a Catholic church, and you're like, why are we sitting down and standing up, sitting down and standing up, and saying the same things over and over and over again every Sunday, every Sunday, and every Sunday? Well, it's because it's remembering the medieval times when not everybody had books. Right? And so you would learn creeds. So, for example, one of the ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, which is great because Rich Mullins made an amazing song. It's a little 80s, so um, some of you will like that, some of you won't. But it's a great song. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and Maker of earth, and in Jesus His only begotten Son, our Lord, right? born of the Holy Spirit And it just keeps on going. I won't bore you with all of it. But the the, the point is that what they're doing is they're reciting every week, I believe in God the Father, one God, right? Almighty maker of the creator, and in Jesus Christ is only. So you are reciting sort of the tenets of your faith because you don't have a New Testament to keep in your back pocket when you go home. In fact, most of the time, the New Testament wasn't even compiled, or they didn't have complete New Testaments yet when this began. Another way that they would do catechism or catechesis is through, and this became, Very popular during the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, became very popular to do a question and answer. So the teacher would ask a question and the class, you, let's say, would give the answer back. So this is another way in which you could learn without having the necessity of having a book or needing to read. That all makes sense? So this is just kind of, this is just interesting parts of of who we are and why things are and where our church comes from. And you might know that our church doesn't do a lot of creeds, we don't do a lot of uh, catechesis in the traditional sense because we have Bibles and so we can just rely on scripture in a way that they couldn't rely on scripture But there is one little bit of of a catechism particularly that stuck with me, and has stuck with me for many, many years. And I know I've brought it up before, but we're going to spend a little bit of time with it because the scriptures declare it, and it kind of leads us into this idea of splendor. But the question begins like this. What is the chief end of man? So if you grew up Presbyterian, maybe you've even heard this because it comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Catechism. But this is the first question. It's a very good question, I think. What is the chief end of man? If that sounds a little 1600s, it's because it is. So we might say something like, what is the meaning of life? What's this all about? Why am I here? Where is it all going? What's it all for? Like those questions, that's what's sitting behind this question. So it's a very good question, a very deep question, a very important question And the question has a very particular and, of course, very Christian answer. And the answer is this man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Have any of you heard this before? Any of you? Let me see a hand. I want to see hands. Oh, a lot of you. Wonderful. Hopefully, I haven't preached this sermon before. (laughs) I sometimes forget. (laughs) It's the truth. Okay, now, as we move into the new year, um, we are thinking about the splendor and the glory of God, and I've been thinking a lot about this, and I want us to sort of return to it again and again because I truly believe this really hits the nail on the head, and we're going to look at uh, Isaiah 43 today, and that's going to dig into it a little bit more and kind of show us a little bit more of, of what God is up to in this. But the splendor is true, that God's glory is beautiful, and as we reflect upon it, as we make our end to reflect upon his glory, to, to declare his glory, And to enjoy his presence, we will in fact become more joyful people. And joyful people are contagious. You ever been around somebody whose joy is contagious? How many of you have a friend that's just like the joyful, contagious one? Right? How many of you are married to the joyful, contagious one? And you're the miserable one. And you're. I'm describing my marriage now, it's just gonna. Um, But joy is contagious, isn't it? And you wanna be around that person. And when we lean into the fact that God is good, and all that he's made is good, and all that he wants to give us is goodness, and that he wants to pour that into our lives as he develops and grows us, as we think about this and as we reflect it, we become contagious. And contagious is kind of what we're called to be, isn't it? To go into all the world, make disciples. You'll make more disciples if you're not miserable. Promise. If you're more joyful, more people want to be around you. Promise. So let's lean into the splendor and goodness and glory of God this year and reflect it. Because by reflecting that goodness, not only do we lean into the goodness of God, experience his presence, but we also are able to be the missional people that God has called us to be so that more people might be caught up to reflect his glory and experience his presence. So let's dive in to Isaiah 43. If you didn't didn't bring a Bible, I'm using the one just like in the pews there. It's on page 603. This is a prophecy, a, a series of prophecies that, uh, that begin, and it begins with a, a bunch of truths that we're very familiar with, things that we already sort of started. Even the Apostles' Creed already reflected that. Verse 1 begins to talk about how God is the creator. He's created the whole world, and he hasn't just created the whole world and the whole universe, but he's also chosen his people and called his people and, and empowered his people. And he's talking about all of the things that he's up to, now let's move into verse 5 so isaiah 43 verse 5 and i'll even give it to you because some of you find that easier fear not for i am with you i will bring your offspring from the east and from the west i will gather you i will say to the north give up And to the south, do not withhold, bring my sons and daughters from afar, our sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So this is a very important. Text. It's leading into the rest of Isaiah. This is sometimes called Second Isaiah. But as it moves into this, it's moving into what we call the servant songs. And the servant songs are important because they give us really the most detail about what God is going to do through his Messiah, through his Christ, through Jesus himself. But you'll remember with me just for a second that this is reflecting the punishment that is about to befall Israel, what is about to happen. You'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar came in around 587, and he destroyed Jerusalem and all of Israel, and this sort of wasteland that is left of God's people. And then Nebuchadnezzar takes the cream of the crop, the best of the best, and he pulls them out into Babylon. And this is the period we call the exile. This is a period of great sadness and brutality. The temple is destroyed. The people themselves cannot even obey scripture anymore because they have been scattered, and because, as I said, the temple has been destroyed. The priesthood has been eliminated. All of this stuff has happened. And so they are they're spinning a little bit. At, even as we think about these texts, they're struggling. And God is saying in this text that he is bringing a point when he is going to call from these cardinal directions, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south, and he's going to bring all of these scattered people back to himself. He's going to redeem the thing that is broken. And we sort of hear in this something that maybe is speaks a universal truth to all of our stories because aren't we broken and in need of redemption? Isn't the church the thing that God is calling everyone together in so that he can heal and bind and but notice the quality of the people that are coming out. As he's talking about all of these folks who are being brought from all of these places, he's bringing them together. What does he say specifically about them? What do we learn about them? We bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, and yet have ears. This is the people that are being brought out. That's an interesting, that's an interesting thing to say. You might remember Jesus saying something kind of like this. He who has ears to hear Anybody? Let him hear, right? Uh, I I always took that to mean something like my dad would say when I wasn't listening, you know, get get the wax out of your ears. Listen up, you know, what's wrong with you, that kind of thing. Uh, But that's, in fact, as I was doing some different research for something totally unrelated, I stumbled across this, that in Isaiah, blindness and dumbness have to do with idols, have to do with idolatry. It's not just... You're not listening to what God is commanding you to do. It is that you have given yourself to stone or wood or metal objects that cannot see or hear or speak. And we always become what we worship. So if you have put your trust in an idol, you have become like the idol, dumb and deaf and blind. So what is being called here is not just people who are not listening to God, not obeying his commandments. What is happening here is God is calling people out of their idolatry. And as they draw near to him, recognizing him as the only Lord, as the only Savior. In fact, if you've got the kind of Bible that I've got here that we have, if you just flip the page, because we will do that eventually anyway. You'll come to chapter 44 and you'll notice that there are some headings just to kind of help you, you know, figure out the subsections that are going on and they give us some subheadings besides me there is no god and the folly of idolatry like moving right out of this passage what are we talking about? We're talking about people who are giving themselves to idols. In fact, Verse 9 of that chapter says this, All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are what? Blind and ignorant to their own shame. They have pursued creation and not the creator who is to be forever praised. And what has happened is it has cut them off from the very source of life itself from the very source of goodness itself, and has blinded them to truth, has deafened them to truth, and has kept them now silent and unable to even speak the glories of the God who made them. This is why Paul gives such fierce reflection in Romans chapter 1 on the, on the high price of idolatry. These things don't strike us as particularly dastardly because if you went to probably Target this year, this year at some point, you probably saw a Buddha, right? Or some sort of Hindu god. Like For us, they're just decorations. Um, when in, Isra- in Israel's day, they were to be smashed and destroyed. And so it's hard for us to wrap our minds around idolatry because so many, so few of us even have ever seen an idol. And anytime we've seen an idol, it's been in a museum and you've marveled at it, Right? It didn't even cross your mind I should break this thing. It's a false god. We, we don't even think that way anymore. And so a helpful definition might be this from uh, scholar uh, G, G.K. Uh, Beale, who wrote, in fact, the best commentary on Revelation, just so you know, for no reason whatsoever. Whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security, that is worship. What do you hold to? So if you take notes, here's a series of questions you might ask yourself about worship and what it is that you are truly worshiping. Is it an idol? Is it the Lord God? What do you trust in, hope for, desire most? What do you cling to when things are good or things are bad? What will you stand up and fight for? What will you kill for? What will you die for? What subject, when I bring it up, makes you boiling mad? What Facebook post ticked you off the most this week? What brings a tear to your eye and makes you feel sentimental and warm and comfortable? What makes you want to sing at the top of your lungs. I've been in churches, I've been in parades, I've been in concert halls. In all three of those places, I have heard singing, and in all three of those places, the church is the quietest. These are indicators of what we truly love. And you are what you love, just like you will become what you worship. The scriptures declare this in so many different ways, as does common wisdom. Proverbs, for instance, reminds us above all else to guard our hearts because everything flows from it. Worship is built there. The, The old timers back in the 1600s called it the great affection. And is your affection, in fact, Jonathan Edwards wrote the most complicated and tedious book I recommend. No one ever reads it, ever, but I have a copy if you want it. Uh, It was a slog, man. It was horrible. But the whole book, like 800,000 pages of this, is your love for God true and pure? All love, this love is not pure, this love is not All of this. Your love flows from your heart. This is scripture. But there's common wisdom too, right? This is not something, if you're here today and you're like, well, I'm not sure I totally believe in scripture. I'm have some doubts about your Bible and about your Jesus. Then use some common, right? What does what this say? Like? Sometimes the small things take up the most room in your heart, right? We all can agree with Winnie the Pooh. Proverbs doesn't work for you. Maybe, maybe Pooh does. But either way, the subject is true. Most of the time, we actually don't know what our idols are. We don't know what it is that we worship. We're, we're actually blind to it, right? I, 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 imagine these people over here who, in this text, have, have built an idols, and, and they become what they worship, so they are now blind and dumb and deaf. They can't see. They can't hear. They can't speak. What happens to them? They think it's maybe a small thing, one of many things, but this thing has so affected them, it's blinded them. Our idols may be very small in our minds, but they may be everything in our lives, which is why self-reflection is so critical. In light of God's warning to these people, his description of them, and as we see the effects of worshiping something other than God, Scripture goes on here in Isaiah 43, continuing on, Verses 18 through 21, Remember then that the former things, not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do not perceive it. I will make a way in the wilderness. And here, imagine the, 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 the wilderness, the desert, right? The, the, the dead sea area, right? This wilderness that is arid in the wilderness, and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Doesn't that sound like the chief end of man right there? Sometimes we're, we're, our, our society has moved in kind of this grand pendulous swing. There was a time where everything older was better, and we've kind of swung to where everything newer is better. And we, the church, must be wiser than this and recognize that it's somewhere here, that God is indeed doing a new thing, but not an inconsistent thing, do you understand? A thing that is coherent with the call of Scripture, that keeps with it. Because God doesn't change, he calls us to change, correct? So, as we look at scripture here, we see a differing kind of vision. And isn't it very beautiful? God says, I'm going to do a new thing. The places where nothing grew, I will make life blossom. And places where there was no water, I'll make springs of living water just coming out. And what's going what's gonna to be my praises? Do you see it there? The ostrich. Because what a ridiculous thing an ostrich is. And have you ever heard an ostrich? Not the most pleasant sound I've ever heard in my life. Why, oh why, would God choose an ostrich? I know this seems like simple. We just tend to be like, oh, an ostrich moving on. But I, pay attention to your scripture. Go fl- slow because there are lovely things that are present here. And the jackal. How many of you, uh, you know, this reveals my age anyway, but, you know, the, they roll the card in with that big, that big TV on it and they slap in a National Geographic documentary. You know, Brian, I see that smile. Praise the Lord, right? It's watch TV day in school and you see the jackals. And they are horrible beasts. Right, just tearing and howling and they're just, they're not pretty, they're bizarre. And yet, these are these wild things that God is going to do. He's like, we're gonna, I'm, do you see how intensely creative I am? Look at the ostrich. Who does that? I do that. Look at the jackal howling and laughing and making all of this cacophony that you think sounds terrible, but I made it. And it declares my glory. See the praise, everything. God says, Look at all that I'm going to do. And all of this is what? So that my chosen people would walk through this verdant sea and declare my praises. I mean, that is a really horribly manipulative religion, isn't it? So terrible. Call. No, I mean, this is beautiful. This is something that should be filled with joy. We should be declaring these praises. This should be in us with such joy, with such rapture, with such excitement that there is something real that God is doing amongst us. And yet there is a problem. And we have this in the next verse. Verse 22. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. But you have wearied me, O Israel. And as you read those texts, you see exactly how they have neglected him. They have not worshiped him. But what have they done instead? They have mounted on top of their sin more sin. And this is what happens as we draw farther away from God, we become more blind and more deaf and more dumb and more incapable of seeing and hearing and knowing the truth, which is why it is so critical that we remain rooted in Jesus, which is why he said, if you remain in me, you can bear much fruit, but apart from me, you're dead weight and we'll clip you. It's an important word to the church to remember our calling the beauty of it, the power of it, the privilege of it, the duty of it, the grace of it, the excitement of all of this to call forth that we might be the agents who were made to be his praise. They have not called upon God. They have wearied him. We are given these stories that we might see the errors of our forefathers and not make them. How many of you With your children or grandchildren or nieces or nephew, or just some random kid said, Listen, kid, don't do the stupid things I did. (laughs) Thank God for your scriptures, because here is a wonderful opportunity for us not to make the same mistake twice. Here's an opportunity for us to see the calling to which we are called, that we are agents of worship. You might remember that in the ancient world, the neighbors of the Israelites who wrote these visions down, they thought the gods made humans to be slaves, to grow crops, to put those crops upon the altars of, you know, the gods, so that the gods could come down and feast. You might remember Zeus who spent more of his time betting women that were not his wife than managing the heavenlies. The people around Israel were declaring all kinds, of, all kinds of gods, all kinds of paths. And yet this one says, no, look, you have been formed to walk through this world that is going to spring forth with life and bizarre creatures so that you can see the creativity of God. Because you were made in God's image, right? Right? And if you're made in God's image and we see God infinitely creative, infinitely loving, constantly pouring out His goodness and joy and life, isn't that what we're called to be then, too, as His image bearers? Everything, always, everywhere for His glory and for His name. Which is why I think the greatest sin of humanity is that we do not give God enough worship. It isn't that we haven't told enough people what they've done wrong. <laughs> and it isn't that we've done so much that's wrong. Is that we have lost sight of our existence because we were made for so much more than what we are being sold. And the scriptures declare this vision of a world that is broken. And when you watch the news, no matter who you are or what you believe, that's true. the scriptures, the faith that we have in Jesus Christ is the only one that promises a world where justice reigns. And righteousness rules and mercy triumphs over judgment. What is the chief end of human beings? It is to glory in God. Because by glorying in God, glorying in God, not only do we function as we are meant to function, kind of with the grain of the universe, as the old philosophers would say, but it also allows us to live in joy that we didn't know before. And while this text that we read here and spent some time with in 43 talks about God's love and his purpose and his desire for his people and talks about how they have corrupted that and become blind and dumb and deaf, the story never ends there, but rather it continues beautifully into Isaiah. And one of the, towards the end, there's this beautiful text that I want to I land on, I want us to spend our time with as we think about this God who is full of splendor, pouring out his splendor and inviting you to experience his splendor, says this to people long ago who had but the smallest glimmer of God's grace because they did not see their God die for them and rise for them and promise to come back so we have this beautiful text in Isaiah 55 which is reflected actually at the end of your Bible in Revelation 22 but it says this stand scripture pagans come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear to me. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader, a commander. Behold, I call the nations. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, that our God may abundantly pardon. For God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For the rain and the snow, they come down from the heaven. They don't return, but the water to the earth, making it brings forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread for our hunger. And so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish all that I purpose. For you shall go out in joy, and you shall be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all of the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And instead of the thorn shall come the cypress, and instead of the briar the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall never